The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are beginning a new series today in the book of Matthew. Would you please open up to Matthew chapter 6? We're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer for the next several weeks. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, primarily in verses 9 through 13, the Lord's Prayer that we see there. We're calling this series together, uh, and we're, we're talking about what it means for us as the family of God to pray together. And one of the things we're going to be doing, as we do each year, we try to, in between the teaching of different books, we, we just finished Hebrews, and we're going to begin teaching through the book of Daniel in, in mid-September. Uh, and what we try to do uh, as a church, we've identified eight markers of discipleship, and so we try very intentionally and thoughtfully, periodically throughout the year, sandwiched between other uh, teaching series through books of the Bible, we try to have sermon series that, that lean in or press into different areas of discipleship that we've identified. And so, so two areas of discipleship that, we, that we've identified, the, the, a growing disciple of Christ, it, it grows in these areas, are authentic relationships marked by love and authentic worship marked by relationship. And as we do a, a four-week sermon series on prayer, we believe that this sermon series for the next four weeks presses into those areas in our lives as disciples. So it's strategic that we are doing this series, and we're going to take an in-depth look at the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew 6, actually I'm going to begin in verse 5 and read through verse 13. And this is, by the way, the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus preaching in Matthew chapter 6. And when you pray, Jesus said, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows when you need what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Now, we're going to take four weeks to take a look at these few verses, so we're going we're to we're sink in rather deeply. Just as a quick overview of the Lord's Prayer, there are six petitions contained within these five verses. The first three petitions are, are petitions of a vertical nature. They're, they're vertical praise, where, where the primary concern is God's honor, God's kingdom, and God's will. And then the last three petitions are more of a horizontal appeal, where the primary concern is human need. So the first three are concerned with God's glory. The next three petitions are concerned with human well-being. Did you see that in the language? Did you hear the vertical language that pointed to God in verses 9 and 10? Your name be hallowed, God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It's about him. And then did you hear the horizontal language in the next few verses? 
Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then just as a general, uh, just something to, to notice in the language of the Lord's Prayer is the plural language. Did you, did you notice the plural language in the Lord's Prayer? The ours, the we's, the us's contained in this prayer? Our Father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we has all, have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Eight different references to plural language in the Lord's Prayer. This is a prayer written to a community. And the implication here is that this, this is a plural prayer. It's, it's, it's why we're calling this series together, praying as the family of God. And as we've worked on this text over the last couple of weeks, we, we see it divided up into four categories, or there's four movements in this pattern of prayer that Jesus has given us. And we're going to focus on each one of these over the next four weeks. Today, we're going to look at adoration, praising God together in prayer. Next week, we're going to look at surrender, laying our wills down together in prayer. The third week of the series, we're going to look at supplication, lifting our requests together in prayer. And then lastly, we're going to look at intercession, caring for one another through prayer. And in fact, we're going to conclude each of our teachings in this series with a time here in the sanctuary of, of corporate prayer where we can actually pray through this model each and every week over the next four weeks. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I, I'm so grateful for the men and women you've gathered here this morning in our, in our sanctuary. God, thank you for the people of Heritage and, and for what you're doing in our life and the way you're growing our church. There's much on my mind today, much on our mind today, God, is as the valley fills with smoke and we think of the fires that are burning all around us, God, of course, our mind are with those in harm's way. And, and God, we're reminded, even as a, a giant hurricane turns off the coast of California, like we are so small, but God, you are so big. I pray that as we come to this text today, as we begin to occupy our hearts and minds with, with what it means to pray this prayer, God, I pray that at the end of the day, you would be hallowed in our hearts and minds. God, you'd be made much of. You would be preeminent. You would be the centerpiece of our life and our worship. You would be exalted and our eyes would be fixed on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, imagine a family heirloom. Maybe you have one in your house. Uh, like a painting that had been in the family for like over a hundred years, maybe handed down one generation to the next. It's old, it's dated, it's not really in line with the current tastes and trends. Imagine it maybe hanging behind a door in a forgotten room where no one can really see it or appreciate it or pay attention to it, collecting dust and going unnoticed for decades. Can you imagine a painting? This was a case for a guy by the name of Rue Ferguson from Corpus Christi, Texas. He had such a painting in his home. It was a painting his great-grandparents had acquired in the 30s somewhere in Mexico. It was a painting of this laborer wearing a shawl and a woven straw hat out in the fields. There was a name scrawled in the bottom right-hand corner of the painting, Diego Rivera. And, and though Ferguson had heard of the artist Diego Rivera, this didn't look like the art that he was familiar with that came from that one particular painter. And he didn't even know if this was an original, if it was sought after. Uh, he didn't know how special this piece of art was, so it just hung behind his door, collecting dust and forgotten. And so, so not sure what to do with the painting after years of looking at it. Uh, one day, the Antique Roadshow was coming through Corpus Christi, Texas. So, so Ferguson decides, yeah, I might as well go see what it's worth. So he takes his painting down to the Antiques Roadshow to see if it's worth anything. And he encounters this expert by the name of Colleen Fesco. 
And she's an expert. And so she begins to examine the painting and immediately she recognizes that it's rare. And it's beautiful, actually. And that it has a tremendous value. She knew that Ferguson had a treasure on his hands that had long gone, gone unnoticed and unappreciated behind his door. It was a long sought after piece of lost art. It was one of Diego Rivera's first ever paintings. He painted it when he was 18 years old. 1904 he painted it. He called it El Albanil. Here's a picture of it. You can imagine Ruse, uh, Ruse Ferguson's surprise when Fesco, this, this estimator, said this painting is worth somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars. Because the painting had become so common, just almost like a forgotten piece of art that hung behind the door of his home, it's something he grew up with. The, view, the beauty and the value had gone unnoticed, neglected. It was just a dusty old painting. It took someone else to help him recognize its rarity, its beauty, and its tremendous value. I think the Lord's Prayer has become such a thing for many in the church today. Like a dusty old painting that hangs behind the door, I think we tend to forget about the Lord's Prayer. I know I do. It's a dusty old prayer that our ancestors handed down, our grandparents, maybe even our parents handed down, hangs behind the door of our minds, going unnoticed. And for many Christians today, we fail to recognize its rarity, its beauty, its tremendous value, me included. The Lord's Prayer really isn't in line with our current tastes and trends, so it ends up being neglected and forgotten. And in a world that seems to be obsessed with living from one viral clip to the next, whatever the most buzzworthy thing is, or even a Christian culture that loves to gravitate towards the latest, greatest Christian fad, the Lord's Prayer is a forgotten treasure. And I've come all the more convinced of that in the last six or seven days as I prepared for today's teaching. The Lord's Prayer is without a doubt the greatest prayer of the Christian church. I read that this week in a commentary and I agree. Not only is the Lord's Prayer the greatest prayer, it's embedded in Matthew's gospel within the greatest sermon ever preached. It's in the center of the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount preached by Jesus Christ himself overlooking the Sea of Galilee some 2,000 years ago. The Sermon on the Mount is this massive uh, discourse in Matthew's gospel spanning chapters 5, 6, and 7. This massive teaching of Jesus. It's a part of uh, the, this instruction that Jesus gave to his disciples about what kingdom life was like in, in his kingdom. What his disciples were to live like, those who, who lived under the rule and reign of King Jesus. That's what the Sermon on the Mount was preached for. And in the center of the teaching is this Lord's Prayer, is an anchor that holds those teachings together. It's the center of the sermon. And so, so my hope is for the next oh, four weeks that we can maybe take this painting from around the, the door in the corner of our mind and, and dust it off and, and put it above the mantle of our heart and mind and recognize anew the beauty and the rarity and the tremendous value of this prayer. So let's look back to the text. I see four things in our passage today and we're just looking at the first eight words. We're only looking at verse nine today. I see, I see four things that I think these eight words teach us that are super important as we kind of prepare our hearts and minds to, to embrace the fullness of this prayer that Jesus gave us. First, we've got to just notice the context. I, I read this earlier. Jesus, initially, he, he's saying that, that we ought to pray in contrast to the pagans and to the religionists of the day. He says that the, the, the hypocrites prayed these kind of boastful, self-aggrandizing prayers. Don't be like them. 
He's saying the Gentiles uh, prayed these mindless, empty prayers, repetitive prayers that really had no substance. Don't pray like them. And then in verse 9, he says, pray, however, like this. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven also our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As many have noted over the centuries, maybe a better title for this prayer isn't the Lord's Prayer, but probably the the disciples' prayer. I mean, Jesus taught us how to pray this prayer, but he, technically speaking, would never have to pray this prayer. Jesus never has to ask for his debts to be forgiven. So it's more of a, a disciples' prayer. It's a pattern for how Jesus has given his disciples to pray. He says, pray then like this. If you look at, there's a, not a parallel account, but another instance in the gospel of Luke where Jesus teaches very similar, his disciples, how to pray this way. And because in in Luke chapter 11, his disciples come to him and they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so then Jesus teaches them how to pray. It was upon the request of his disciples that he taught them to pray this same pattern of prayer. And if you look at the context of Matthew 6, it's clear that this prayer is not to be some sort of mindless incantation that we just repeat where our mind is elsewhere. No, it's, it's, it's meant to be substantive. Now, throughout church history, it's been used in liturgical services and people have repeated this. How many of you grew up repeating the Lord's Prayer in your, in your church services? Yeah, so many of us did. And, and that's been used in church for 2,000 years. That's an appropriate use of the Lord's Prayer as long as we're not just repeating it mechanically and mindlessly and are not considering the truths contained therein. And similarly, the Lord's Prayer has been used as a pattern to just help equip us to be men and women of prayer. For the sake of this series, we're looking at it more as a pattern that we can learn from, less of of a liturgical response. However, at the end of each teaching, we are going to be repeating the Lord's Prayer together as a congregation. A couple things I want you to to notice. The first thing is this. If you take notes, I I would would take this down. It's a pattern for prayer, but, but in the pattern Jesus gives us, we see that prayer is communal. We see it's communal. And so we are called to pray together. That's the first thing we see. Look at the the very first word of the prayer is a plural word. Our. We begin the Lord's Prayer with the word our. The whole prayer is phrased in the plural. This is the prayer of a community. Not so much an individual act of of individual devotion. However, it's appropriate also to pray privately that's not forbidden in scripture but the way in which jesus gave us this prayer and the pattern he gave us it begins with this language of plurality our and the human heart desires that we desire for togetherness we desire to belong to community for for men and women to be connected together we were made by god for community in fact, if you think back to the garden of eden chapter 2 before sin had invaded the human race as Adam was naming the animals of the field, he, he noticed there was not a helpmate suitable for him. And do you remember the, what God said when he looked at the lonely heart of Adam? He said, it is not good for man to be alone. And then he made him a helpmate. We were made for togetherness. We were made for community, for relationship. And as we think about God, one of the fundamental things, one of the fundamental truths about God that we know is that he is triune which means he is three in one. God is one in essence, three in person, Father, Son, Spirit. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. And we have to be very careful and use very precise language when it comes to this doctrine because it's so easy to mess it up. 
As Christians, we hold to this belief. The Trinity is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are each fully and equally God in eternal relation with each other. It's a very carefully chosen phrase. To say it another way, God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. Not three gods, but one God in three persons. Now, this is a glorious mystery to the human mind. It's outside of human comprehension. It only serves to remind us of the infinite nature of God because our finite minds struggle to comprehend his otherness or his, his set-apartness from us. And yet, when we read in Genesis 1, as God is fashioning humankind, we read that we were made in his image. As human beings, you and I have been made in the image of a Trinitarian God. And there's this cool word that Jeremy and I were talking about this week that describes the, the unique relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. One, essence, one in essence, three in person. There's a word that tries to capture the, the, the kind of essence of the Godhead. It's the Greek word perichoresis. And though it's not a bird that we would see in the Bible, it's a, it's a theological term that's often used. I have, a, I have a definition of perichoresis up top there. It's a Greek term used to describe the eternal mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity. Look at that phrase by uh, the book Doctrine that speaks about the, the communal nature of the Trinity. The Trinity is first community. The Trinity is the first community and the ideal for all communities. That community alone has not been stained by the selfishness of sin. Therefore, in the diversity of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, is perfect unity as one God that communicates truthfully, loves unreservedly, lives connectedly, serves humbly, interacts easily, and serves selflessly. In a word, the Trinity is the ideal community in every way. Or to say it another way, God is a friend and has friends. And so as we consider this loving indwelling that takes place in the Trinity, as we envision the essence of oneness, of, of togetherness that exists within the Trinity, as we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all occupying the same divine space in perfect, beautiful unity, as we behold this togetherness, we understand why it is that it is not good for man to be alone. You see, when we come together as the family of God, when we, in love and humility, gather together for worship and for fellowship and for prayer, we are, in fact, expressing the very image of God that has been imprinted upon us since the beginning of time. We look for love because our triune God is perfect love. We desire community because our triune God is perfect community. We work for unity because our triune God is perfect unity. We hunger for togetherness because our triune God is perfect togetherness. It is by design that as Jesus taught us to pray, the very first word he taught us to utter is the word our. We were made for togetherness. Interesting. Is, is we see the Trinity at work in and through our prayers, we, we, we also think about the way in which the Trinity 
is at work as you and I come to God in prayer. My son and I talk about this often. We think about the role of the Trinity in, in you and I praying. It is in the power of the Holy Spirit that we intercede. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He said the Spirit himself intercedes for us. So we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray to the Father, our Father in heaven. And we pray in and through the name of Jesus. Jesus said you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And so we see the full functioning of the Godhead at work, even in the act of us praying, praying in the power of the Spirit to the Father through the Son. It's beautiful. So we approach God in prayer together. He is our Father. And though private, personal prayer is is a Christian discipline, in fact, we see it modeled by Jesus for this series, and as we consider the Lord's Prayer and the pattern that he taught us to pray, we see that prayer is communal. And so we pray together. Secondly, as we look at this pattern that Jesus gave us to pray, we, we see of prayer that it's intimate as we pray to the Father. We see that prayer is to be intimate as we pray to the Father. Our Father, the prayer begins. And the word Father here is a Greek word, and its Aramaic equivalent is the word we all know, Abba. Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and, and the word that would have passed through his lips as he prayed to the Father would have been the word Abba. And Abba is not a formal title. Abba is an expression of familial intimacy. It's, it's how a child would address their dad. It's, it's no doubt the term Jesus used to talk to his earthly father, Joseph, as he was growing up, Abba. Some have said the closest English equivalent is the word daddy. And there's some truth to that interpretation. That expression, though I think rightly laced with the intimacy inherent in this term, I think it isn't quite right. I agree with Kent Hughes, who says that a better rendering of the word Abba in English would be the phrase dearest father or dearest dad. Because that phrase captures both the the endeared intimacy of a daddy, but also recognizing the authority that a father possesses. I think the ESV study Bible had a really nice phrase on this. It said to claim that The claim that Abba means daddy is misleading, and it runs the risk of irreverence. Nevertheless, the idea of prayer to God as our Father conveys the authority, warmth, and intimacy of a a loving Father's care. And so Jesus is teaching us to pray to our dearest Father. And that's not just how we are to see him. It not only means that we are to see God as this caring, warm, authoritative, loving, heavenly Father. It also means that's a two-way relationship. That means when when the Father looks at us, he sees us as his children. Think of an adorning father. Dad's in the room. Think of when your kids are growing up. Think of whatever phrase, whatever season of life, you look at your kids, and there's that overwhelming uh, love and desire for protection and care and adoration in your children. You just watch them, and the act of watching your children play or think or do what they do. My kids are now adults. I watch them thriving as adults, and there's just there's pride, and there's joy, and there's love and adoration and appreciation for who they are and who they're becoming. He is our Father, not just in the sense that we can approach Him in warmth, but He also approaches us in warmth. That's a two-way relationship. It's a beautiful picture of the intimacy contained in prayer. And in fact, as we look at the Gospels, as we listen, listen to the prayers of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, He always addressed, He began His prayers addressing the Father, or my Father. Over 60 times in the Gospels, we see Jesus praying to his Father. There's only one time in the New Testament where he doesn't refer to God as 
is the father or his father, and that's when he's on the cross and he's dying and he's quoting Psalm 22 when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so if you're a first century Jew and you're listening to Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount and you're in, you're in uh, Galilee, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, listening to this teaching, it would have been revolutionary to hear Jesus teach his disciples to address God as our Father. First century Jews, they would have been familiar with the title Father given to God, but there's only 14 occurrences in the whole entire Old Testament where this is true. And every time it appears, it's never meant to be a title for an individual. It's always referring to God as father of the nation of Israel. Never once is is the term father used of God in relationship to a person in the Old Testament. So to the Jewish mind, the distance from God was well guarded. As we learned in the study of Hebrews over 35 weeks, we learned this. God was seen as powerful and sovereign and transcendent, but father to the individual? That was revolutionary. God was not seen in the Jewish mind as intimate, but as infinite. Not as father, but as far away. And so when Jesus invites his disciples to call the God of Israel father, it revolutionized the way they thought of God, approached God, and even lived in relationship with God. And so as a Christian today, for us, maybe it's not quite as revolutionary because we've grown up with these teachings But we know what the scriptures say about us. You and I are adopted children of God. Like, he is our father. It's not just a a cute title. It's a reflection of the actual relationship that exists between disciples and and God. You go back to John chapter 1, the apostle John in his gospel, verses 12 and 13. He says, all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right for them to become children of God. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. We are children of God. He is our Father. And the Apostle Paul, in his writings, reminds Christians to to approach God, uh, emboldened by the Holy Spirit, and to cry out to him as Abba, Father. We see it in multiple locations. And then, as Jeremy pointed out to me this week as we were studying, uh, if you go to to John chapter 20, uh, the day of the resurrection... As Mary Magdalene is near the the tomb, the empty tomb, and she encounters the risen Christ, there's this unique interaction between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. John 20, verses 17 through 18, Jesus says to Mary, Do not cling to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. And so we see the risen Christ calling disciples, his brothers, saying he is our father. I read somewhere this week that father is the title the forgiven use to refer to their loving father. Maybe some of you had an earthly father who modeled godlike forgiveness in your life. And it's not hard for you to imagine the, the gracious, forgiving, caring, loving embrace of a dad. And maybe for some of you, you cannot even conceive what that would be. But when Jesus shared a story, a parable for us in Luke's gospel, chapter 15, about a son who, who violated the father-son relationship, who took his inheritance early, turned his back on his father, decided to live his own way, found himself so far from his father, so far removed, up to his, his eyebrows in the muck of life, when his heart was softened and he, and he returned back home, he returned to his father. 
And when he was still a long way off, we read that the father ran out and loved the son and embraced the son and forgave the son and celebrated his return. That's why people have said that father is the title the forgiven use to refer to their loving father. And so as the church today, we are children of God. We are the sons and daughters of God. He is our Abba. He is our dearest dad. And Jesus has invited us and instructed us to run to our father, to appeal to the intimate father-child relationship we have with him. And we do this together. We do this together. We're going to do this together today, in fact. It reminds me of all those years growing up when my kids were small and, you know, Father's Day would roll around or my birthday would roll around and my kids would disappear for a couple hours in the basement or in their bedrooms and I knew they were putting something together. Because they never had money, so they never got me stuff. They had to give me something. Like a, so I was, it was going to be a dance and a song. How many, how many of you got dancing songs from your kids on birthdays or Father's Days or Mother's Day? I loved it. And I can remember, I can think of a half a dozen times sitting down as a dad and watching my little kids strut out in front of me and they'd push play on the little tape player or the CD player or the, on YouTube and they would start singing and dancing a little song expressing their adoration and their love for me with their choreographed dance moves and I, my smile would be from ear to ear. It was beautiful and I loved it. As I think about what it means for us to gather as the family of God and to express our adoration to the Father, it's like us gathering in his presence as the children of God, singing together with joyful hearts, our appreciation, our love, our adoration for our Father. And he is so pleased by it when he sees us gather together in his presence and lift him up. So we see that prayer is communal. We pray together. We see that it's intimate. We pray to the Father. Thirdly, the pattern of prayer that Jesus gave us, we see that prayer, that it's heavenly. And he he tells us to pray to the, the reigning king, We see that prayer is also heavenly, not just communal, not just intimate, but also heavenly, and we pray to the reigning king. We are to begin the Lord's Prayer, our prayer, the pattern with our Father in heaven. Our Father, as our Father, God is intimately involved in your life and my life. He is Father, but also he is entirely unlike our earth fathers in that he is also in heaven. He is our father in heaven. Not only is God our caring, warm, authoritative, loving, heavenly father, he is also the heavenly king. And he's transcendent. He's far above anything we could conceive or imagine. He is sovereign and he is reigning. He's the all-powerful and supreme ruler of the universe. And we pray to our Father in heaven. Do you see the, the, both the intimate nature of this relationship and the... And the Like the awe of God, the reverent, hallowed way that we approach God. You see that both exist. And you see why the phrase daddy is not the best interpretation of the word father because it misses out on this heavenly peace. There's both a, a reverence and an intimacy in how we approach God. These four words form the foundation upon which the rest of the prayer sits. It is on the foundation of our Father in heaven that our prayers are lifted. Our, together, we pray And we approach our Father, our dearest Dad, who intimately loves and pursues us. Our Father in heaven, we recognize his is also the sovereign, transcendent, reigning king of the universe. And as we studied this passage, there's there's so much truth contained in, in just the word heaven. There are volumes and volumes and volumes of PhDs and and theologians and academics who've written on the teachings of heaven and scripture. We couldn't exhaust the teachings today. But just very practically, we were asking, okay, what is heaven? Where is heaven? Questions like that. But we thought about those moments more practically. 
when heaven and earth touch, when the natural and the divine intersect. Ancient Celtic Christians called these, or called this, the thin place, or the thin places, where the distance between heaven and earth is thin. And the Celtics thought of them as actual geographical places on earth. I like what author Timothy George says. He, he writes that these places are special not because the air is rarefied or the land is narrow, but because the distance between heaven and earth shrinks and time and eternity embrace. I think of those places in Scripture where the Lord, in his kindness, met a person in a thin place. We see them all throughout the Scriptures. Eden, the burning bush, the banks of the Nile, the summit of Mount Carmel, the stables of Bethlehem, Mars Hill. There are major moments in the Scriptures and in salvation history where we see these thin places occurring. I read this week that no more significant than what took place in a little hill outside Jerusalem. In the place of all thin places, the veil between earth and heaven was not just thin, but completely torn. God acted to redeem sinners fully and finally on the concrete cross of Jesus Christ. The Lord didn't save in the abstract, but through a real death in a real place. I think back over the course of my life, and perhaps you might think back over the course of your life about where these thin places may have happened, where you may have encountered God in a way that is outside of just regular human senses and experience. I've talked to people throughout my life who have stories to tell where God shook their world, where God showed up in a way they couldn't define, and they sort of built an Ebenezer there, a stack of rocks to remind them of the faithfulness of God in that place. And in my experience as a pastor and, and being around people near the end of life, and I'm sure many of you have been bedside with people you love near the end of life, I just can't help but believe that one of those thin places is in those moments preceding death when a saint is preparing to die. When you're sitting bedside with someone who's lived a faithful life, who's placed their hope and their trust in Jesus, there begins to be a glow in their face and a peace that surpasses all understanding. And I'm convinced, I don't have proof, but I'm convinced that God begins to peel back the veil. And when the saints are approaching death, God opens up the veil, he reaches through space and time in that thin place, and he grabs them by their hand and guides them into glory. I'm convinced of it. These thin places are those places in our life where God and our relationship with him went from abstract to concrete. It's places where you look back on your life and you have built Ebenezer's to the faithfulness of God. That's a moment that forever changed me when I encountered God in that place. It's those places in your life where you, for just a brief moment, got a droplet on your palate of what glory is like. And as you think about heaven, as you think about the new heavens and the new earth and what awaits us as believers, you've got that little teeny droplet on your palate of what it's going to be like for all of eternity. R.C. Sproul, he he used to talk about how he believes the whole theme of the Christian life is what he called quorum deo, which is a Latin word that means before the face of God. He believes the whole lens through which we view the Christian life is that we are living our lives before the face of God. He's not all the way across the cosmos in some far off heavenly place. He's both in heaven, but he's also here. He's present. We're living our lives before the face of God. Sproul writes, to live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and whatever we are To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent and there is no place so remote that we cannot or that we can escape his his penetrating gaze. 
And so when we pray, our Father in heaven, we are reminded that our God is not far off, that he is near us, and that he is not just Father, but he is the transcendent, sovereign, reigning king. And so in this pattern that Jesus has given us to pray, we see the first three things, that prayer is communal, we pray together. We see that it's intimate, we pray to the Father. We see that it's heavenly and we pray to the reigning king. And finally, in this pattern of prayer that Jesus has given us, we see that prayer is hollowed. It is hollowed or hollowed, depending on how you pronounce it, in that we are to pray reverently. It's hollowed and we are to pray reverently. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven sets us up to, to then make this petition to God. Our Father in heaven, we say. And then we make the very first petition. There's six petitions in this prayer. This is the first of the six petitions. We have got this foundational awareness of God, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. It's not a word we use today, the word hallowed. It's interesting that many, many, current English translations have held on to that word because we don't really have a good equivalent in the English language. I've seen some translations try to kind of provide many words, like the New Living Translation says, may your name be kept holy. Another translation says, may your name be revered as holy. Another translation says, may your name be honored. But this word for hallowed is hagadadzo, and it means to make something supreme in your life. And we don't have a great equivalent in the English language because this word means that there is no equivalent. It's the one and only. It's to treat it as sacred or the ultimate. It's to make something your ultimate concern. It's to make it the most crucial and sacred thing in your life. It, this, is, this, is a, this is a picture of exalting Christ to the absolute, exalting God to the absolute throne of our lives. To hollow God's name is to recognize there is none other, to revere him and recognize his ultimate and perfect sacredness. It's to place him as the ultimate concern of our lives and to put him at the absolute center of our world. Hallowed be your name or hallowed be your name is the foundational petition of the Lord's Prayer. It interprets and controls everything that comes next. It's beginning with the vertical before we concern ourselves with the horizontal. All the other petitions of the Lord's Prayer hang on this first petition. Because if we do not hallow God's name, if we do not hallow God, we will not be concerned with his kingdom coming. If we do not hallow God's name, we're not going to be too concerned about his will being done. If we do not hallow God, we won't see him as the source of our provision. We will not look to him for forgiveness, and we will not have an example of forgiveness to draw from. If we do not hallow God, we won't look to him for deliverance from evil or guidance as we seek to be led away from temptation. With this call to hollow God's name is a call to hollow God himself. It reminds us of the priority of our prayers and really the priority of the Christian life. The Christian life is a never-ending exercise in the hallowing of God's name. And when we hollow the wrong things in our life, things get out of whack. I listened to a great teaching this week about this. A great teaching about what happens when we hollow the wrong things in life. When we, when we hollow the opinions of others more than the opinions of God. When we hollow money 
more than God. And we hollow human relationships more than God. And the, the, the great example or the great, the great test of the human heart is to ask yourself, what is the ultimate in my life right now? What is at the absolute center of my world? That is the thing that I hollow. What occupies my thoughts? What occupies my time? What occupies my money? What occupies my schedule? That is the thing that I hollow. And if that's not God, I'm being led in a way that I'm going to be frustrated and my life's going to get out of whack and it's going to cease to honor God the way my life is intended to. I heard one illustration this week that, that I thought was profound. It was the story of a, a man who had had an affair. He was a godly man. He, he made a mistake. He had an affair, um, confessed and repented and fought hard to save his marriage and his wife forgave him and their marriage was saved. Their friends forgave him and, their, and they, they got back, he got back on a, a healthy track of restoring marriage, restoring life. And, but as this pastor continued to meet with this guy for years to come, the guy would say, I know my wife forgives me. I know that my extended family forgives me. I can't forgive myself. And as the pastor began to dig and dig and dig and ask this gentleman questions, he began to realize that this guy grew up in a home where his parents were very prudish and the message he received from his family and his family growing up was that there was one unforgivable sin. And it was, and it was, it was infidelity. And you could do anything else, but if you, if you committed this one unforgivable sin according to this family's doctrine, you were beyond repair, beyond healing, beyond forgiveness. And so this guy could not forgive himself. And wisely, the shepherd, the pastor who was walking with him through this season said, you are hollowing the opinions of your parents ahead of the opinions of God. You are hollowing a family ethic or a family rule above the very character of God. Our God is a forgiving God. He has cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. And your unwillingness to forgive yourselves means you are hollowing the wrong thing. Ugh. I began to think about my life this week, the, the hang-ups, the aches, the pains, the, the messiness of my life, the angst of the soul. Through that lens, like, Paul, what am I hollowing? What is in that place of preeminence in my life that ought not be there? Is it career? Is it my portfolio? Is it my marriage? Is it my kids? All good things, all fine things, but if I'm hollowing them and they're the preeminent or utmost in my life, there's a problem. There's only one name to hollow. Hollow God. As I thought about this this week, I thought about how do we do it? I mean, if his glory comes before our wants, which is essentially what the prayer is saying, hollow be your name, if his glory comes before our wants, then when you and I pray together, when we pray hollow be your name, we are dedicating ourselves to lead a life that, 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 that reverences God how do we do that in practical ways? What does it look like for you and for me to hollow God? Well, first, I think we hollow his name when we worship. Part of gathering weekly and exalting the name of Jesus as a body of believers together, we are hollowing the name of God. We're lifting him up. We're, we're, we're showing the priority of our life. And when we pray together as the family of God, like we're going to in a few minutes, we, we are hollowing God in our lives. We are, we, are, we are appealing to this centerpiece of our universe. And so when we worship, we hollow his name. Secondly, we hollow his name when, when our beliefs and our understanding of him are worthy of him. It's very hard to hollow a God we do not know. Or it's very hard to hollow a God who we think we know, but actually our understandings of him are wrong. 
And that's why the word of God is so important. That's why sound teaching is so important. That's why community and growing in Christ together is so important so that we together can grow in our understanding and our knowledge of God so that our heart worship to him is more fully informed so we can hollow him for who he really is. We cannot hollow the name if we do not know him. We cannot hollow his name if we do not understand him. And the third way, the third way that we hollow him is when we live lives that put on display the fact that he is our father. One of the greatest compliments I get as a dad, one of the greatest compliments I get, and I still get these compliments, which I love, is when people say to me, like I talk to my kids as coaches or the adults they're interacting with outside of our family, and they say something like, man, your kids are incredible. Like, I just love, your kids are high character, they have a good work ethic, I just, your kids are just awesome. And, and, and what they're saying is they're saying, Becky and Paul, you've done a really good job of raising your kids. They're wonderful adults. And of course, we can't take credit for that. But, but when you and I, we hollow the name of God when we live lives that put on display that he is our father. When we live in a way that reveals his character to the world around us. When we love as he loves, when we see as he sees, when we care as he cares, we are putting on display, we are hollowing God because people recognize that he is our father. And so there are practical ways we can hollow the name of God. We do it through corporate worship. We do it when our understanding of him aligns with who he is and when we live in such a way that he receives the glory and people can see his heart. And so church, as we look at these eight words, we see four considerations that we are to heed in prayer according to the pattern that Jesus gave us. We're to pray like this. It's, it's communal, so we're to pray together. It's intimate, so we're to pray to the Father. It's heavenly, so we are to pray to the reigning king. And it's hollowed, and we are to pray reverently. And so my hope is that in your heart and mind, that, that old dusty painting that hung behind the door of your mind, we can dust that off and we can hang it up above our mantle. And we can begin to see the, the rarity and the beauty and the, the absolute treasure, the the incomprehensible treasure that is contained in this prayer. And as we pray it, may this continue to be a pattern of prayer for us moving forward. And so what we've done is each week we are providing a resource for our church that will help you pray. And it's, it's available today in our, in our Heritage at Home Center in, in printed form. But like Jeremy said, our website, the app, we're going to send out an email. It's a simple resource that we want to give everybody in our church to guide you in prayer over the next 28 days. We're hoping, we're hoping, we're praying that our church, as we teach through the rest of the Lord's Prayer, that we will spend 28 days committing to prayer. We're asking for you to commit to 15 minutes of prayer in the morning and 15 minutes of prayer in the evening, guided through the resource we're giving you. In over 28 days, if you and I, each one of us do that, that that is three and a half hours of prayer per person per week. And if just 200 people from Heritage engage in this practice over the next 28 days, that means we will spend 2,800 hours praying as a church, 117 days in prayer as the family of God. May we together as the family of God boldly approach our Father. May we approach him as a trusting child approaches a loving, warm, caring, ever-present dad. And may we enjoy intimacy with him as a child enjoys intimacy with their dad. And at the same time, may we also show deep reverence for our heavenly father who is the sovereign, transcendent, raving king, reigning king and who has all authority. And as we do this, as we approach our heavenly father, may we hollow his name. May he be the ultimate in our lives and may we recognize his unending value and treasure him with all our heart, 
all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And so now, church, together, as the family of God, would you please repeat the Lord's Prayer with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now over the next eight minutes, I'm going to invite the band up to the stage. We want to invite our church to pray together. I know this may be new and different from what you're used to. It's certainly new and different for me. But as we talked about this series, we felt we're not, we don't want to just talk for the next four weeks about praying together as the family of God. We want to facilitate us praying together as the family of God. And so we're inviting you today for the next eight minutes to pray. There's going to be some music on the stage. We're going to pray in groups of three or four, or if you would rather prefer to pray quietly on your own, that's entirely appropriate. If you want to pray as a family unit, if you want to pray with people you've not met before, we're just asking you to circle up around the sanctuary for the next eight minutes. If you're at home and you're tuning in online, we encourage you to join in at home as well. And we're going to be praying in four two-minute blocks of time. And we're inviting you to pray as a part of our worship service. And imagine us as, as children on a stage before their father dancing before him, showing him adoration. And we're going to pray for the next four weeks according to the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. We're going to pray for two minutes on adoration. We're going to praise God together in prayer. We're going to pray in surrender. We're going to, we're going to lay our wills down together in prayer before God. We're going to pray prayers of supplication. We're going to lift other requests together in prayer. And we're going to pray prayers of intercession today, caring for one another together in prayer. And so I'm going to ask you as the band starts to stand up, to gather together and begin to pray as the family of God, and we begin today by offering God our adoration. Please spend the next two minutes offering praise to God for his character and nature as our Father, and do so without asking for anything. Would you please pair up?